This episode of The Sporting Spirit is brought to you by our listeners who support us on patreon.com slash the sporting spirit podcast. As we're an independent podcast without any major sponsors, we are reliant on any help that you are capable of giving. Whether it's by just contributing five euros a month or even if it's by sharing the link of this podcast to colleagues, friends or family. As always, peace and love. And welcome back to this week's episode of The Sporting Spirit. As always, and without me having to say, I'm joined by my co-host Carl, um, who's just made it back from work. Carl, what, what have you got for us this week? Yeah, so he's coming straight to the chase here. That the... <laughs> The, the news today, like no chit-chatting here. We use all about business. Uh, so the news that I want to bring up uh, this time is about uh, the, the franchise, the NBA franchise, Dallas Mavericks. And I think most listeners like associate Dallas Mavericks with uh, the, the German legend, Dirk Nowitzki, and also their team owner. There is very outspoken Mark Cuban. Uh, but this time it's other headlines that made, and it's because the Mavericks was one of the f- is the first team that decided to not play the national anthem before their games. And it has become criticized and it's also started like some sort of a debate in the US as well about the national anthem as sports. And the NBA came out and said that you have to play the national anthem before sports, like you don't have a choice. But for me also like, it's like, why do we play national anthem before sports? Like what, and not, and also thinking like, okay, it's about public gathering. Okay, but why don't we play the national anthem in the cinema? Uh, at mass at like church or in the mosque why don't we play it at concerts in in school mm. like what separates sports from those yeah. other gatherings that, that that's a fascinating question for sure and uh, before we recorded this myself and carl were sort of talking about which countries sort of do that right sing the national anthem before as, as, as you mentioned, like public gatherings. We know that obviously most sport events, you know, like in the United States, singing the national anthem is a huge thing, whether it is yeah. in international competition or within the country itself. Yeah. Um, in China, being the very patriotic country that it is, pretty much any kind of um, sporting event or public event for that matter um, has the national anthem before it begins. So it's a funny one as you as you mentioned why why don't we sing it before like a concert or whatever would it be you know would it be appropriate i i'm i'm not too sure but why is it appropriate at a like a sport event then exactly i don't know but also like i was googling around because i was passionate like which countries do this and in my googling take it or leave it for what it is but what i could found like in japan they do it before like baseball yeah. games and in india they do it before cricket games mm. but not many other countries do this stuff no. And especially in Europe, it's a load like like you don't do it in Europe at all. Uh, like you don't do it in Sweden, you don't in Germany, no, UK, no, Italy, France, Spain, no. Like they don't play. We don't play the national anthem before sporting events. Only like if it's like national teams playing each other. Yeah. But not like in our own national leagues. Yeah, I've got. I think I've got a little theory. You know, like because in in Malaysia, and I know that Indonesia is the same. In Singapore, in Southeast Asia. And, and a lot of like, re, like, I wouldn't say recently independent, but you know what I mean? Like sort of countries that gain independence in the last 60, 70 years, you often get a lot of like patriotic symbolism, you know, a lot of, the, always the national anthem before any sporting event. 
and like funny story just cropped up in my head um in thailand um one time i was in bangkok one time and um i was watching a movie i'm not sure which one it was i think it was the hangover or something right right before it started the national anthem came on but i didn't realize the national anthem because until everyone started standing up i just thought it was the beginning of the movie right <laughs> <laughs> so that yeah so there, there are there are countries where the national anthem is played at sort of you know at, at strange or different kind of events and stuff i think like as an outsider like looking like being like from europe i think in europe um, in many countries the national anthem has more of like an, like a negative connotation there's more towards like nationalism and this has been like national anthem and the flags have been claimed by like the right wing movement in many countries. And you see this as not very like forward thinking of playing the national anthem. And it brings it back to the, the time when you had this like diversion and like racial biology where you separated people into like races. And you, a lot of people get that connotation when they hear the national anthem. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I think particularly in, in Europe, I mean, in the obvious countries like places like, like Germany or Italy, you know, you there's some sort of um, ethno nationalistic feeling when 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 there is too much patriotism put that way, and so so people are very very aware of the connotations that come with, I yeah. guess you know wearing or having a flag in front of your house, you know, you know playing the national anthem before whatever event. So yeah, it's it's an interesting one that and definitely affected by obviously historical factors. Yeah, because. Because if you look also like at the national anthem playing like in, in the U.S. when it comes to sports, it happened like it started with the First World War uh, and then it became popularized during the Second World War about like galvanizing the nation and like building this patriotism. Like we are one nation and we are supporting our troops and, be, and sports were used to that. And then it just became a tradition and now it's just part of sports. But for me, I don't really care if you play the national anthem or not before the National League. If you want to do it, fine. If you don't. That's fine as well. But from, you just have to present to me a valid argument of why play it at sports and not at other, other public gatherings. Like what separates sports from the cinema, from mass, yeah. from concert? And people could say, oh, it's because it's televised, so it brings out to the nation. Yeah, but at the same time, you play it at high school games as well. They're not televised and have like an audience of maybe like 50 people. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting one for sure. I mean, uh, in terms of international competition, I, I completely get it, and it it links into what we said at the start of this podcast, right? The the George Orwell quote, I think the war minus the shooting quote that that's so yeah. famous, right? Like how sport is the platform for nation states to sort of engage in in battle, um, and and therefore all this sort of you know, paraphernalia, you know, nationalistic yeah. paraphernalia, obviously aids that feeling of animosity, I guess, between countries, nations, whatever it is. Otherwise, I don't really get why, For as you said, why you'd play um, the national anthem at a high school football match yeah. where there's like 20 people. Yeah, and one interesting thing is like, for example, in Buffalo, that is right by the border between Canada and the US. I know at least in their NHL game, they play both the American and the Canadian national anthem, even if there's like two American teams that are playing because they feel they have so many Canadian supporters as well that like uh, travel across the border. So you could be like an American and go to a game in Buffalo watching like Buffalo Sabres versus New York Rangers and you will hear the Canadian national anthem before the game. <laughs> I, I had no idea that that actually 
that happens. You learn something new every day. That's that's insane. That's insane. But but we'll leave it at that right there for now. And and talking about Canada, it links perfectly into you know our interview today because we've got a distinguished professor from Canada on the show this week. He's an expert in a wide range of topics, I'd say, um, particularly within the field of sociology of sports. But his main focuses are, are particularly within the Paralympic movement as well as to do with disability sport. I don't want to give too much away. So yeah. Let's get to it. And on this week's episode, I am absolutely delighted to be able to welcome onto our show Professor David Howe, who is the Dr. Frank Hayden Endowed Chair in Sport and Social Impact in the School of Kinesiology at Western University in Ontario, Canada. His research interests include the culture of disability, the ethics of Paralympism, and the social history of the Paralympic movement, just to name a few. Professor Howe has a rich sporting background as a hugely successful cross-country athlete and as a four-time Paralympian. In fact, he finished on the podium and medaled in the 5,000-meter cross-country race, the C7 category, at both the Seoul 1988 and Barcelona 1992 Paralympic Games. Professor Howe, welcome onto the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Professor, I just want to begin, um, even though I've given a bit of a background on your career so far, I want to talk about yeah, your, your background and, and, and how you got into this rather niche field of work slash academia. Um, well, I, I, would say, I would honestly say that I, I'm somewhat of an accidental academic. So it wasn't a plan in and of itself. And um, you mentioned that I that I spent some time um, as a as a runner, and I was I was fortunate enough to 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 get to the Paralympic Games. I have a I have a um, mild disability, um, cerebral palsy, hemiplegia, which affects the right hemisphere of my body. And at the time that I was um, running and going to university and these sorts of things. There wasn't a lot of money available in parasports. Um, governments, I, I'm Canadian. Uh, the government of Canada wasn't paying its top Paralympic athletes uh, for training and that sort of thing. Mm. Towards the end of my career, they started to do that. But I had to justify staying as a serious runner to my family. And, you know, it was always expected that I would go to uh, university and right. um, do an undergraduate degree and then get a job and be, become a taxpayer and all these sorts <laughs> of things. Yeah. But in order to in order to justify running after undergraduate university age, I had to um, do something else and do something that that my parents valued. And so I stayed in education as a as something that I enjoy, I enjoy, the, I really enjoy the learning process and all these sorts of things, but I did my master's and then my PhD in part because it facilitated the other side of my life that I was hugely passionate about. So in some ways, you know, and my PhD research was on the professionalization of sports medicine in the context of rugby union football. It was not about Paralympic sport. Mm. And that was, 
that was key and important to my development. I didn't want to be seen as the guy with a disability that only knows about disability sport. And, so, and I also needed something that gave me enough distance between who I was as a, as a person outside of the study. So if I was studying Paralympic sport from the get-go, I would have been, it would have been all too overwhelming. I think I think it's really interesting. Um, the the whole the whole part about um, you not wanting to be shoeboxed into something. Um, can you talk to us then a bit about how you got into eventually the Paralympic part of um, academia? Certainly, I think the you know I did I did my I did my PhD and I and I wrote a few publications on the pain and injury stuff. But I I also felt in that I have. I had a moral obligation or I still have a moral obligation to speak um, for people who may not have the privilege of being able to speak for themselves in this sort of environment. So, you know, I was given the opportunity um, uh, not because of, of my own making my own way in the world, but because of the, the, the opportunities that my family gave me. Um, you know, class is a really big issue that, that, that's not talked enough about in disability sport. This sort of the, the Marxist notion of class. Mm. And, you know, my parents were both teachers. They facilitated all the opportunities for me. Um, my mother um, was instrumental in breaking down barriers that I may have faced as a, as a young disabled person. And so when I got to university and, and the world was opened up to me and I, you know, I didn't need my parents um, from, from that day forward, but they, they created the opportunity for me to be uh, a learner, get, get to university and all these sorts of things. And I felt that there are a lot of people, poverty is something that impacts a lot of people that have disabilities. And so because, I, because I'm in a privileged position, because I've had a charmed life in that regard, I felt that it was my moral obligation to, to speak up for, um, on some of the topics that, that some people might not want to or might not have the opportunity to. And so the, the shift to um, disability sport, more broadly speaking, um, was predicated on that desire. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. and. And I guess that's where I would like to start off, really, um, in terms of today's interview. The academic side of, of, of your work to do with the Paralympic movement, as you are indeed an expert, um, could you tell us a bit about the roots of the movement and how, how that started off? Uh, yes, I certainly could. Um, I would like to, um, one caveat, I am not a historian. Um, there will be people, perhaps, that listen to this podcast that are historians, and I may get some you know, the, my command of the historical facts is not as good as a historian. I'm a social anthropologist, which for the lay person means that I'm really interested in history, I'm interested in philosophy, and I'm interested in sociology with the focus on culture. Mm. And so um, my take on history is, and this is something that we see in social history all the time, my personal take on the history it might be distinctive from other people that are working specifically as historians in the area. Um, 
But the roots of the Paralympic movement um, are believed to have started in um, Stoke Mandeville in, uh, near Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire, which is north of London uh, in the United Kingdom. And the Stoke Mandeville was a hospital that was set up um, uh, during the Second World War. They set up a hospital for individuals with spinal cord injuries. Uh, soldiers that had had their spinal cord injured um, in uh, in the battle in in um, mainland Europe mm. and pro in the UK as well, but it, as part of World War II, and the the one there was a medical advance between the the first and the second World War in terms of anesthesiology and the ability to get people that had injured their spinal cords from the battlefield to um, the safe haven of the UK. And the UK wasn't entirely safe. Um, there was lots of bombing going on and so on and so forth, but the relative safe haven. And so this, this in a sense, um, created a bit of a uh, social problem. So you get men that are surviving conflict that uh, hadn't previously survived. And there was a need by the British government to to look into ways of um, rehabilitating these individuals. And there was a, um, neur a neurologist who had um, escaped uh, Nazi Germany, um, Professor Ludwig Gutmann, um, who, was, who was of Jewish ancestry. He, he escaped uh, the Nazi regime and came to Oxford University. And in 1943, uh, he was, it was requested that he, because of his expertise in neurology, that he take over at the Stoke Mandeville Hospital, which was opened in 1944, um, to look at rehabilitating these individuals. In the first instance, um, this was not about, sport was not used. And this is, um, uh, Anderson, I, I believe it's Julie Anderson in um, 2003 wrote a, wrote a delightful paper that I always highlight, um, uh, which, which, which talks about the importance of returning taxpayers to active duty. And this was really the agenda of the Stoke Mandeville Hospital. But one of the things that uh, Ludwig Gutmann um, re realized is it was hard to get these young men to actively engage in rehabilitation. And one day when he was walking around the grounds, after the rehabilitation sessions were over, he was walking around the grounds with the physiotherapist. And he happened upon the young men playing what in, a, in the history of the Paralympic movement is referred to as wheelchair polo where they had taken walking sticks and turned them upside down and using a cricket ball were playing a makeshift game. And that got Gutman and the physiotherapist thinking about, well, we can use some form of sport and games as a way of stimulating their desire to be rehabilitated. And so sport was not the means, was, a, was the means to an end. In, 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 in the early development. It wasn't the agenda. And so I think that's, 
you know, it was a desire to get these men yeah. to become taxpayers again, to be fully employed and so on. Yeah, that's a really interesting start for the movement. Um, and I think when a lot of people think about the Paralympics, they think about the Olympics um, and, and somehow, you know, it's, it's, it's interwoven. Um, how closely are those two events related in terms of the actual movements? And I'm talking about the modern Olympic Games, of course. Yes, well, there's a, there's a, I mean, the, the, um, the link between the um, Paralympic movement, as it is now known, and the Olympic movement is, is very, very strong. And it's, it's now, you know, it's now officially the Olympic and Paralympic Games. That's the way it's um, supposed to be referred to. Mm. Um, but this, there's, there is a certain um, uh, link between um, the Olympic and Paralympic Games, which goes back um, some time. So it goes back uh, 65 years. So in, in 1956, the International Stoke Mandeville Games Federation, which is the sporting organization that uh, Gutman established, um, won a, an Olympic award called the Fernley Cup for um, exhibiting um, attitudes and philosophies that were aligned with the, the Olympic movement. Prior to that, in, 19, in 1948, the sort of dawn of the Paralympic movement, um, Gutman had a very small event on the opening ceremonies of the London 1948 Games in July 1948. And so that was sort of the, the, the crystallizing of the idea that, that sport, that the, what became the Paralympics and the um, Olympic movement would have some degree of harmony. Now, the first Paralympic Games was, was, um, is referred to as Rome in 1960. Mm, yeah. So it's the first time that the Games, um, the Paralympic Games and the Olympic Games were in, in the same country, in the, in the same city. And t- touching on that point, because I think... Um, the Paralympic Games have, has has evolved so much over the course of that period of time, and even though it is a short period of time, relatively speaking. And I want to just pick out something from something you wrote a couple of years ago. Um, it's a book called "The Cultural Politics of the Paralympics Movement." I want to begin with a quote in its introductory chapter. "Quote: In the past sixty years, sport for the disabled has gone from being a platform for the rehabilitation of the war wounded." to the point where the Paralympic Games is the most recognized sporting festival for people with impairments. Paralympic sport has gone from providing athletes with the opportunity to participate to adopting a high performance model of sporting practice that attracts a large amount of media attention, end quote. What are or were some of the driving factors that have contributed to the evolution of the Paralympic movement from, as you mentioned, a platform that provided disabled athletes with an opportunity to play to its current day sort of high performance model driven by commercial sponsors. So in, in the context of um, Paralympic sport, we can see two broad ways of um, becoming uh, impaired. Impaired through birth or um, congenital, congenital impairment and or through accident. And the, the um, depending on if you, 
if you are impaired through an accident, um, the, the normal process is that you go through a form of rehabilitation, often in medical settings. And in those, in those medical settings today, you might be exposed, there's, a, there's a, a greater chance of being exposed to sport as a potential tool to help in the rehabilitation, mm. to, to allow rehabilitation to take place with, where you're focusing on the sporting activity rather than the rehabilitation itself. Right. Um, also, a lot of individuals who are congenitally impaired are forced by society to go through rehabilitation that may um, get them back, you know, give them a normal body. And so rehabilitation may be part of their uh, experiences as well. Once they, people engage in sport, then they go from sport as rehabilitation to sport as participation. And then if they get a bug for the competition side of things and they have a body that is um, acceptable within Paralympic sport, mm. because this is one of the things that the public might not know is that not every disability impairment is eligible for Paralympic competition. So the, the, the push for high performance, there has to be a degree of what uh, pedagogues would say is sporting sporting literacy the body needs to be good at moving and so on mm. for that particular sport in comparison to other bodies that are um, classified within the context of the Paralympic movement so not everyone with a disability uh, can become a Paralympian there is a there is a um, degree of um, physical capital that an individual must have in order to um, compete at the highest Paralympic level. Absolutely. And I, I believe you, you wrote something about the so-called Paralympic paradox with a colleague of yours a couple of years ago, which you described as a tension created by the representation of a Paralympian as either an impaired athlete or an athlete with a disability. What, what, what do you mean by this? Is this linked to what you just mentioned um, earlier? Well, I think that, that first of all, um, the, the Paralympic paradox is something that first came up in uh, the cultural politics of the Paralympic movement. And wh while it is a, it's a, it's a nice idea, the, the, the paradox keeps shifting. So as, as time moves on, you know, what was the paradox in 2008 when I wrote the book um, may not be a paradox now. And so these ideas shift, but the, the, the assumption is that in some contexts, uh, bodies with uh, disabilities are celebrated. Mm. In other contexts, they're not. And there, there, is, there, are, there are lots of, the, the, the expectation today is that um, particularly in, um, you know, Western nations where, where the Paralympic movement is, has, has a um, certain cachet that, you know, if, you're, if your nation has a, has a Paralympic um, uh, presence, as is the case in Canada and, you know, all across Europe and so mm. on, um, that 
people with disabilities' lives are going to be great and wonderful. But as the Paralympics gets higher and higher profile, there are fewer people that can reach that level. And it becomes burdensome on those people that A, may not like sport, mm. and B, don't have the phys or B, don't have the physical capability to represent their nation in the Paralympic movement. So there are certain tensions that exist. The celebration of, of certain athletes ahead, you know, even within the Paralympic Games, there's a celebration of certain athletes over other athletes. Now that of course happens in the Olympics as well. Mm. You know, week one of the Olympic Games, at least the way I see it, is all about swimming. Week two of the Olympic Games is all about track and field. Yeah. Those sports seem to be more celebrated than other sports. So this, but what seems to happen at the Paralympic Games is it's about body type. So that if you're a, um, a, a Paralympic body that uses a high performance wheelchair on the track, um, for example, to, to wheel around the track really, really fast. And I know that there's some really good Malaysian um, uh, Paralympians that, you know, that can be seen in that space. Indeed, yeah. Um, the, or you use a prosthetic limb. If, if you engage with technology and you're at the Paralympic Games, it's my feeling that you're more highly celebrated than if you have an impaired body that doesn't engage with technology in the same way. Now, all high performance sport people engage with technology in some way they are cyborgs, but I'm talking about the explicit use of prosthetic limbs and um, wheelchairs for mobility. Mm. And yeah. so, you know, this is the tension now that some Paralympians are celebrated more than others. Mm. And, you know, I'm trying to use this sporting moment, this, this idea to to get people to think about the celebration of difference. It's not about Paralympic sport in and of itself because there's lots of things wrong with commercialized professional sport. And as I've told my students and I may, and I'm sure I told you all those years ago that, you know, I see myself as a bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, as a, um, human being, uh, as a, as a former sports person, I, you know, I pushed my body as hard as it could go. And I love high performance sport. You know, I, I, I love watching football or association football, soccer. I love watching basketball. Um, and I, you know, at the NBA, Toronto Raptors and all that sort of thing, I get really, really excited about it. But as an academic, I realized that professional sport causes as many problems as is it, as it as it is it becomes an opiate for the masses mm. so it allows us to escape the world that we're in and so on and so forth and it's great during lockdown here in Canada that you can see sport on television and the NBA is running the National Hockey League's running um, soccer is running in Europe and it's a great escape mm. but there's so much that's that's wrong with it and I don't think that the Paralympics escapes that. The push for professionalism in the Paralympic movement, which is linked 
to its ties with the IOC is not necessarily good for people with disabilities. The people that are engaged in the Paralympics where there's more money available and there's more sponsors for individual athletes and so on, it's fantastic. But as being a, a message for inclusion, you know, it's, it's completely wrong. You talk about sort of the complexities of professionalism, particularly in Paralympic sport. What, in your opinion, are some of, I guess, the real problems with that? The idea that certain Paralympians or events or categories are celebrated over others, um, the, the idea that your know, elite Paralympic sport is somehow better, more lucrative than, than others. Um, the fact that it contradicts, obviously, the, the principle of inclusion and diversity that, that the Olympic movement and the Paralympic movement holds. Um, yeah, what, what are some of the problems there? So I think that, you know, the, the International Paralympic Committee is doing a wonderful job at selling the brand. And one of the things they've tried to do is to make it... Um, they've, they've celebrated it as an opportunity for inclusion. Now... I can understand where they're going for, what they're going for. Mm. And that helps the brand and that helps um, draw sponsors and so on towards the games. And, you know, I, I'm fascinated and I love watching the Paralympic games. But this, you know, high performance sport is never inclusive. And you don't see the Olympic movement doing the same thing. So uh, I give an example of when, you know, when I was uh, doing research during the, the London 2012 games and in and around London and so on. And I was working as a journalist, but I had, a, I went to a, I went to a pub as, as my want. And, and I went into this pub and there was a guy in a wheelchair in the pub and it was during the Paralympic games. And there was a discussion going on, you know, and he was getting very agitated and annoyed about the fact that, um, you know, people were asking him what he was doing with the Paralympic Games. And his, his view was, well, you know, I'm somebody in a wheelchair. That doesn't mean that I'm interested in or involved in the Paralympic Games. Mm. And it's just in the same way that, you know, if somebody's walking down the walking down the street with a with a um, Manchester United football jersey or a Tottenham Hotspur football jersey, the the you're not going to make the automatic assumption that that is actually a player for one of those teams. And this the the juxtaposition of these two thoughts is really really crucial. That. The, the Paralympic movement has been so successful and which is great and wonderful, mm. but it's been so successful at the cost of the plethora of other daily activities that people with disabilities can engage in and find value in and so on and so forth. Mm. And so I think there is a tension there with this, this, this Paralympic brand being celebrated above and beyond the, 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 the lives and, and experiences and existence of normal individuals who have impairments that may not be interested in sport. Mm. And so there's a, 
there's a real tension there. You know, why, you know, why aren't um, disability theater groups or disability choirs or whatever, whatever sort of leisure activity takes your fancy? You know, why aren't they celebrated in the same mm -hmm. way? So the Paralympic movement has done a wonderful job at getting the branding out there. But on, on another level, it, you know, the branding might become so successful that it's, it actually impedes um, the development of individual identity for some people with disabilities. Mm. I think that's, again, um, a fascinating take on, on the issue. And, and do you think then it's, it's a cost worth bearing, you know, the, the, the whole, the, the commercialization of the sport, the professionalism, the professionalization of the sport that sort of captures a wider audience. Um, but on the other hand, sort of jeopardizes the identity of a lot of um, other people that is, is it worth it then in your opinion? I have, there is a, I have a love-hate relationship with professional sport as I've, I've already articulated in some way, but I think that, you know, to, to all too often people who, who, who say these sorts of things hark back to a, an age of amateurism and so on. And the age of amateurism was one of privilege that was predicated on being, you know, male of a certain class from a certain cultural background and so on and so forth. And we don't want to go there either. So I think, I th think what I would like to see is the Paralympic movement moving away from this, this, you know, the, 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 the understanding that they can't inspire everyone to, to, for a more inclusive society. You know, it's because it's 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 icing on the cake. Disability mm. sport is the icing on the cake for, you know, a lot of a lot of what goes on in in the world. And we need to, you know, they need to take a I feel that they're in a position where they can take a step back and say, hey, we're a high performance sport organization. We do not have to pander to, you know, there are other sport organizations for for people with disabilities that are not about high performance sport and so we we so this this push to see themselves as changing the world in a in a huge massive way um i can see why they did it it increases their market pretend uh, marketing potential and so on and so forth but i think if they look in in it themselves closely i think they they should take a step back from that mm. Now, whether they do or not, you know, some, some, sometimes I'm seen in Paralympic circles as a bit of a troublemaker, and I'm, I don't mean to be a troublemaker. I, I mean to get people to question where the movement is going, because we need to be better. We need, as a, as a movement, and, and I'm part of the Paralympic movement in the broadest sense, we need to be better at um, conducting our business than the IOC is. We need to be better than other sports organizations because of where we're starting from. So that people with disabilities can be seen as, as equal citizens in the world and, and so on. So it shouldn't just be all about the marketing hype. It should be mm -hmm. about authenticity. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I guess to summarize your point, you'd say that you know the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, has essentially got to stop trying to be all things to all people, and and perhaps, you know, pass on the mantle of, let's call it mass sport participation to other organizations who clearly exist um, in this, you know, in particularly in the global north. Yes, I think that there's a, you know, it's there's a real tension between um, high performance sport and getting all citizens physically active. Mm. You know, I want to see um, uh, people with disabilities are more likely to be inactive than people uh, with with normal abilities. And I want to see, you know, and, and Paralympic sport is part of that, encouraging young people who might have the sporting bug mm. to pursue high performance sport and, and all the positive qualities that that can give you as an individual is really, really important. And, and I certainly wouldn't be the same individual that I, that I am today if I hadn't engaged in that pursuit of the higher, faster and stronger. But it's about, you know, the International Paralympic Committee is, and, and the Paralympic movement is one piece of that puzzle. We need to encourage people with disabilities to be more physically active. And and less sedentary and so on and 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 create a culture where you know people are, are not stared at simply because they're being physically active and have different bodies um you know i think i i can't there are so many good things the international paralympic committee has done but i think that this idea that you say all things to all people is, is really, really important. They need to say, you know, we're high performance sport for particular groups of individuals. And it's not for all people with disabilities. Mm. We're high performance sport for a selection, a historically significant selection of impaired bodies. And this is what we do. And this is what our brand can do for you. But saying that you're inclusive and you're being a high performance sport is uh doesn't really fit <laughs> yeah it's complex to say the least um yes and yeah I, I guess moving on to a slightly lighter note and and the reason why of course that we're talking about this um apart from the fact that i've got this great opportunity to speak to you is because it's of course um paralympic year anyway if, if it goes on in in tokyo um and, and tokyo will become the first city in the world to have hosted the paralympics twice of course the first time they did it was in 1964 um, what, what are you most looking forward to in, in this year's games, if it goes ahead? The one thing I'm really looking forward to at the Tokyo Games is, and this this um, stems from you know the sort of sporting interests in Japan. I'm I'm really interested in how the marathon at the Paralympic Games, and and you know I was a distance runner when I was was active as an athlete, yeah. and so obviously I'm. In, more interested in in the longer distances, but I'm interested in how you know Japan is a country that loves the marathon far far more than any other country in the, across the globe, and it is a real um, you know marathons in Japan are real spectacles, and I'm really really interested to see and in how um, the the Japanese embrace um, the the spectacle of the the Paralympic marathon. Now, 
you know that that was the case in point when the the Tokyo Games were go- going ahead last year before the virus and so on. Mm. It's going to really depend on how many spectators are able to be there, because obviously, if you don't have spectators, uh, it's it, it changes the celebration. And and my understanding is that it's the only people that are going to be able to go to the games are the athletes and the 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 team contingent and so on right. and very very few people because of the the fear of of um the the covid virus and so mm-hmm. on so that may shape the nature of the games i'm i'm also interested in um you know looking at the the number of um women's events that go at the Paralympic Games and the depths of the fields within those events, because there is a, there's a huge issue with um, the, the, the numbers of women that are engaged in Paralympic sport. And it is historically been a problem, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 and as yet, you know, there, there's ongoing research that's trying to sort out, you know, what is the barrier between for for women to engage in Paralympic sport that that men with the same impairments don't face and so on. So those two things really so in terms of the participation of women at the games, but I want to see, you know, I'd really love to see about how the 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 people of Japan embrace, you know, a sport that they love um, done by people with varying degrees of disability in, you know, in in and around Tokyo. And I'm not sure whether the Paralympic marathon will be removed from Tokyo. Certainly the, the, the Olympic marathon has been removed from Tokyo to, to be in a, in a slightly cooler place yeah. um, uh, for, for health and safety reasons. I'm not sure whether the Paralympic marathon will be done on the same course or whether the, because it's, we're a few weeks later, um, it'll be done in Tokyo itself. Mm. So, It'll be interesting to see how that's embraced, and you know um, the, the the number of women that are engaged, and and not just the number of women, but the depths of women's fields. Because sometimes at the Paralympic Games, the women's fields have not been as deep as the men's fields, and and I think it's important that 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 you know both men and women have an opportunity to compete um, at the Paralympic Games. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and those two developments you talked about, we'll be keeping a close eye on it as well and, and in Tokyo, certainly. And we're hoping that, fingers crossed, it goes ahead. Um, and I guess one last big question before we, we let you go. We've got to talk about the future of, of the movement. Um, you've, you've written, you, you've, you've spoken about um, the Paralympic movement. You're often a critical voice on issues to do with the Paralympic movement, but you're also clearly a champion of Paralympic sport. What does the future hold for Paralympic sport? That is a difficult thing to say. Um, the the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, and the International Paralympic Committee have a agreement in principle um, to be joined until 2032. I think it's, it runs another 11 years. Um, you know, I I think that there are signs that the Olympic movement is in decline. And from my perspective, it is um, disappointing 
that the IPC is so linked with the IOC. And this, this, this relationship in, 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 is long established. It's, it's been formalized since uh, about 2000. And, you know, it, the, while the International Paralympic Committee wanted to be, wanted to get noticed by the Olympic Committee for a long time before that, it was, I don't think it's, I think it's in part the, the scandal around the Salt Lake City mm. um, 2002 Winter Olympic Games and um, the, the, the voting scandal around that that, that um, tarnished the Olympic movement. But shortly there, after that was exposed, the, there was an, a, an agreement between the IOC and the IPC when the IPC needed money and, and so on and so forth. I would like to see the IPC move separately from the IOC. Mm. I don't, that will, that is unlikely to happen. So that's not me projecting the future. Right. I would like right. to see, I would also like to see the, the IPC uh, be more modest in what it, it, it can achieve for people with disabilities around the globe. Mm. Um, what the future holds, I think the, you know, there's, there's, some wonderful opportunities with with huge global brands and I'm not going to name global brands but there are some global brands that um, you know have media spots during the Super Bowl the, the the most expensive time on television and so on that support both the the Olympic and the Paralympic movement and you're seeing um, representations of Paralympic athletes within these media marketing campaigns that is absolutely phenomenal yeah but it's really, really important that the IPC celebrates all the athletes, not just the ones that are the, the, that are media media friendly. Um, you, you know, they've got to take the opportunity to make all Paralympic bodies and celebrate them, and celebrate the difference the differences between people. You know, and this harks back to. Um, in, in the contemporary world, um, the, Black, the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's, it's interesting, the number of people that do not make the connection between the Black Lives Matter movement and the civil rights movement in the United States, in spite of the fact that Martin Luther King is being used as a symbol in the NBA and other organizations. The IPC needs to use its voice, its um, uh, pedestal, if, if you will, to celebrate all the varieties of different impairments that it houses within the Paralympic movement, so that that people with disabilities can be better celebrated in society. Now, I'm hopeful they will do that. What the future will hold for the Paralympic movement, certainly within the next decade, is I think increased sponsorship. There'll be greater opportunities for athletes um, certainly in Western nations and um, other, you know, other, other, other nations that invest heavily in, you know, China invests so much in the Paralympic movement and they've got so many athletes because of the size of the population and so on. Yeah. You know, if, if the Paralympic movement can enhance opportunities for people on the ground with disabilities in China, that would be fascinating, fantastic. But there are issues within all, all cultures, all um, you know, uh, countries with, around the globe about human rights 
and for social justice and so on. And so I would like to, so I'm not predicting the future, but what I would like to see is that, you know, the IPC uses its platform to enhance the, the celebration of a wide variety of individuals who, who partake in their sports so that individuals that don't partake in sport may be seen more favorably within the society that they reside and exist. Yeah, we're, cer we're certainly hoping for that as well. And we're certainly hoping that, you know, despite you saying that you're not, you know, you, you can't foresee the future, we, we're certainly hoping that at least a few of those things that you just said come to fruition. Um, and we always like to end the episode with a sort of a personal question. And, and mine for you today is, who, if, if you did have any, who was your sporting hero growing up? Um, there are two people. Um, one is in part because of my name. Mm -hmm. So um, for those, um, how is, is a, uh, a name that is linked to a hockey player called Gordy Howe, who is known as um, Mr. Hockey. He played professional hockey from 1946 to 1980. And it's a very rough and tough game. It's a, it's a, you know, he played till he was in his fifties wow. and because of my name, it you know, it was one of these family jokes that was passed around. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I've read all his biographies and so on, but I was a terrible hockey player in part because I had cerebral palsy. I did play hockey, but I couldn't skate for, for toffee. Um, <laughs> But my big sporting hero, the the um, is a is somebody who's celebrated in Japan actually, right. um, uh, a man by the name of Jerome Drayton, who um, in 1975 um, set the Canadian record for the marathon. It was one of the fastest times in the world, two hours, ten minutes, and eight seconds. And there was a lot of publicity around him in the lead up to the 1976 Olympic Games. And he, well, I was at the 1976 Olympic Games. My father took me to see all the track and field. And it might be one of the reasons I became a track athlete. Hmm. He was booed when he came into the stadium. And in Montreal, because he finished sixth. Hmm. Now, that moment really, really shaped me. Because you as an individual can represent your nation to the best of your abilities and so on, not with a medal. And people somehow think you haven't done the best you could do. He was, he had been a former, he, he was a former world record holder for the 10 mile um, and so on and so forth. And he was a, he was a bit of a, um, a loner, a, um, an introvert and so on. And, you know, to be a serious marathon runner in the 1970s was seen as odd and quirky. I'm, a, I'm in spite of doing podcasts like this, I'm a bit of an introvert myself. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time running on my own. And it was his image and the way in which um, he pursued his athletics career that, that, you know, was something that I celebrated above and beyond anything. Thanks very much for your time, Professor Howe. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for uh, considering me to talk on this topic, and I hope I haven't offended any um, historians out there. I'm sure you haven't. We look forward to having you back at some point. I'd be delighted anytime.
And there you have it. That was Professor David Howe of Western University in Ontario, Canada. Um, I personally really enjoyed, first of all, having the opportunity to meet Professor Howe again after so many years. Um, and yeah, I think everything that we discussed was was quite dense in a way. You know, it was a lot of um, a lot of deep thinking, um, which I've come to expect from Professor Howe, and also some really interesting perspectives on Paralympism on disability sport. Carl, what what about you? What what did you think about the interview, and what do you think about what, what um, Professor Howe said? Yeah, first of all, like I'm a little sad I I couldn't have joined that uh, conversation. I, I would have really enjoyed that but when i was listening back to it i i really liked it especially like the professor was not afraid of like swinging and throwing haymakers towards the elite which we both appreciate and respect and that's what what we like here with our podcast it's like we just swinging towards the the top dogs at the end of the interview uh professor howell said that you know like he he, he apologized to me saying that, oh yeah, in case he was being too verbose and too straightforward, but I, I told him this is exactly what you want. You know, we want people yeah. who shoot straight from the hips. I also agree with what he was saying as yeah. well. And also like it's opened up a different perspective as well. Yeah. Like as he's saying, like, yeah, like Paralympics, it's more, you have to get the notion that that's elite sport. It's a very, very small minority of people with disabilities that do sports mm. that have the opportunity to participate in the Paralympics. Yeah. Sure. They have their obstacles and they don't have all the finances, but they're still like kind of like privileged athletes to be in that position to compete their Paralympics. No, absolutely right. The analogy which he used, I'm not sure if you caught that, but he, he said that um, we don't, we don't assume that a bloke walking down the street who's wearing a Man United shirt, place for Man United, right? We don't assume that, but there is the association of a disabled person, you know, a person with impairment who plays sport, you know, having to sort of compete at the highest level mm. in the Paralympics. You know what I mean? That there's, there's tension, as he calls it, that exists there, which in many ways discriminates against people who perhaps don't even like sport or people with disability who just want to play sport for sport's sake, right? For enjoyment. Yeah, yeah. so like, just like, sure, it's, it's fine to have this like elite level, but if it's too much focus on the elite level that that's like it's either nothing or everything like you can the only thing you can do with uh, as like in sports when it comes to like people with disabilities mm. it's paralympics and elite sport no you need to get the notion as well that like, it could be recreational sport as well and like yeah. maybe focusing on starting recreational leagues or maybe start like make sure that gyms are accessible for people with disabilities as well yeah. they just want to go and work out because there are a lot of gyms out there that are unfortunately not uh, like made for people with disabilities. Yep. No, absolutely. And they exclude them from uh, the sport industry. And then, and then we can sit and watch the TV. Yeah, but this these Paralympians are such a good athletes. They are like performing at a high level. But then at the local gym, uh, people with disabilities can't go and even work out. Totally. Yeah. And I think that that ties into um, what Professor Howe talked about. He, you know, he didn't, he didn't go out on the offensive against the International Paralympic Committee and and, and sort of criticize everything that, they, that they've done so far because you know he acknowledged all the good work they've been doing. He was saying how in you know, the commercial side, you know, the, the the media it started to you know attract can only be a positive thing for yeah. the movement and for people with aspirations to be physically active, particularly for people with disability, right? Um, 
but the other hand, you know, like there, there is a fine balance to, to be to be had. As you mentioned, it's got to be able to speak to people, obviously, who don't want to compete at the highest level, you know, and it's yeah. got to be inclusive. It's got to be for everyone, right? As he was talking about, well, like in the beginning, sport was used as uh, for rehab instead. It wasn't about like performance. It was about rehabbing. And it was more uh, a mean to an end. So it was using sport to be able to maybe like be part of society again, to like rehab your body, to get yeah. some self-work. You're like, you, you are capable of doing stuff and then you use that and then you be able to go back in society and become uh, part of like the job market or, or something. Yeah, for, for the lack of a better word, it almost feels like everything that sport for development is about, right? Yeah. What we call sport for development now seems to be what the Paralympic movement was almost founded upon. You know, the idea of um, sport as a tool to basically integrate or reintegrate people back into society, um, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And also, like, if people want to, they do sport and then, okay, I'm a, like, I love sports. That's what I want to, like, pursue. I want to become, like, an elite athlete. They should have that opportunity as well. They should be able to have those resources. But you should not neglect those people that just want to play on a recreational level. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that was the, I think that was the point that, Professor Howe was making all throughout um, yeah. the discussion, you know, the fact that there has to be this inclusive element. It, there has yeah. to be a point where the Paralympic movement takes into account everyone and not just the elite few. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I think, you know, as you said, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting time for Paralympic sport. It's never been more popular. It's never been, it's never had more commercial success. You know, as, as Professor Howe pointed out, just the amount of sponsorship deals, you know, um, the amount of advertisements that, you know, have famous Paralympians in them it says yeah. something clearly that progress is being made. And, and, and this year's Paralympics in Tokyo will be another step forward for sure for the movement. The important thing is just to make sure that everyone is being brought together and not just the elite. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself, John. <laughs> so yeah um before we go um yeah we, we i didn't i didn't quite mention it in the interview but professor Howe has got a lot of publications and books out there to be read and and i certainly certainly encourage anyone who's interested in this field of or in this topic rather to get get your hands on these different um pieces of work i hope that all you guys enjoyed you know an, another different topic this week compared to in the last couple of weeks Peace and love. Peace and love.